calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash pandemic. Chapter three. Day two. The end. Repubbo thuggy. Like anyone would ever believe Gutierrez's little green men bullshit and the work of his scientist whore Montoya, they should find those spicks and shoot them like the traitor that he is. James Yu, in reply to Repubbo thuggy. A Republican would say something like that, which shows your lack of education. Thanks for trying, though. Maybe you should read a book. J.C. Doomtrooper, in reply to James Yu. I bet I read twice as many books as you, libtard, and the ones you read are full of pictures. I read philosophy, strategy, history, and the most important book of all, the Bible. Detroit got nukes because it was a Sodham and Gomorrah, and it was God's will. Carol B., in reply to J.C. Doomtrooper. Stupid trooper you can't even spell, which is so typical of people who think the Bible, a.k.a. the storybook, is real. Your words show how stupid you actually are, so good job on that. Margot. Margaret Montoya reflexively closed the laptop. It shut with a sharp click. She felt instantly foolish. Caught in the act, she'd reacted without thinking, when simply closing the web browser window would have done the job. Clarence Otto stood in the doorway of their home office. He glanced down at the laptop in front of her. He frowned. Torturing yourself again? No. It was just some research. His eyes narrowed. Really? Margaret felt her face flush. She knew better than to try to lie to him, especially about that. She glanced at the clock next to the computer. He'd left work a bit early. His black suit still looked pristine on his tall, thick frame, as sharp as when he'd left that morning. To anyone else, he probably looked all buttoned up, the kind of man who didn't have to get off a bar stool to leave the place with three new phone numbers. But Margaret had known him for six years, four of those as his wife, and she saw the telltale signs of a long day, the tie just a bit askew, lines at the corners of his eyes, because when he got tired, he started to squint the slight discoloration on the collar of his white shirt, because he always sweated a little, even in air conditioning, the slight damp gleam on his forehead that made his black skin glow. 
Clarence walked into the office to stand next to her. She stared at the closed laptop. He reached a hand down to her chin, gently tilted it up until their eyes met. We talked about this. We've been to therapy. She snapped her chin away. And that was a waste of time, just like I told you it would be. Margaret searched his eyes, searched for the love that used to be there. She didn't find it. Truth was, she hadn't seen that for a long time, hadn't felt his warmth. Its absence made her feel far colder than if she'd never known it at all. Now when he looked at her, it was with pity, sometimes even contempt. He tapped the closed laptop. This is what you do all day. You read the comments of uneducated idiots who have no idea that they're only alive because of what you did. He looked her up and down. And I see that you also follow the therapist's advice about waking up, getting showered and dressed. She'd forgotten she was still wearing the same ratty blue sweatpants and long-sleeved University of Oregon t-shirt she'd slept in. She'd meant to shower, but that thought had slipped away sometime during the second or third blog post she'd read. Was she angry at Clarence for calling her out on that? Or at herself for not doing something so utterly basic? What I wear is none of your business. And I have to do something with my time. It's not like you're ever around. He tapped a fingertip against his sternum. I work. You know that thing that keeps a roof over our heads. She laughed. Even as she did, she heard how hateful and dismissive it sounded. He was supposed to be on her side, not riding her ass. You think your job keeps a roof over our heads, Clarence? Oh, please. We never have to work another day in our lives. We saved the world, remember? Uncle Sam will give us a check any time we ask, just to keep us quiet. Margaret stood, stared at his face. He was a full foot taller than she was. Once upon a time, she'd loved that. Now it was just annoying to always have to look up. You don't work because you have to, she said. You work because you're so goddamn naive you actually think you still make a difference. He said nothing. She saw the veins pulsing in his temples. They popped out like that when he clenched his jaw. He clenched his jaw when he was trying to control his temper. I do make a difference. And so did you before you decided to hide from the world. Before you decided to quit life. He controlled his anger, as always. His discipline enraged her. The world threw hate at her day in, day out. Yet off to work he went, leaving her to face everything alone. She felt a thick rage bubbling in her stomach and chest, a physical, tangible thing with a life of its own. She had to dial that back, or once again she would feel like a helpless participant who could only watch as someone else used her mouth to say awful things. Quit? Is that what you call it? Well, fuck you, Clarence! He nodded, a tired gesture that said, and there it is, right on cue. The same argument as always, flaring up faster each time. Margaret pointed her finger, her weapon of choice. She pointed it right in his face because he hated that. Because if a man did that to him, he'd probably hit that man. But he couldn't hit her, would never hit her. She shook the finger as she talked, almost daring him to lose control, a part of her hoping that for once, just for once, He'd show real emotion. You don't know what it's like. 
Margaret looked to her desk, to the framed pictures of the people she'd lost. A picture of Dew Phillips in a jacket and tie just like Clarence's, although Dew's looked like he'd been wearing it for two days. Dew's crescent of red hair looked similarly disheveled. He stared at the camera as if he was just waiting for an excuse to beat the shit out of the photographer. Next to Dew's frame, a picture of Margaret sitting at a table with the short, pale-skinned Amos Braun. Warm smiles on both of their faces, arms around each other, half-empty glasses of beer in front of them. Five years on, and the photo didn't make her think of the good times. She could only see his expression of panic, the life fading from his eyes as his blood sprayed against the inside of a biohazard suit visor. And the final picture, a framed cover of Sports Illustrated, a massive football player dressed in the maize and blue uniform of the University of Michigan, tackling a white-jerseyed player wearing a silver helmet with crimson dots. Dirt and grass streaked the Michigan player's oversized arms. The block letters at the bottom of the cover read, So good it's scary. Perry Dawsey and the Wolverine D lead Michigan to the Rose Bowl. Perry. Tough, brave, tortured both physically and emotionally. Every night she dreamed of his last moments on earth, those final few seconds before she'd killed him. Those three men had died on her watch. So had Anthony Gitchum, Marcus Thompson, Officer Carmen Sanchez, and a dozen other people she'd met, along with an entire city of people she had not. You can't know what it's like! He rolled his eyes. You going to tell me again how you killed a million people? You didn't kill them, Margaret. She felt the scream tear at her throat, felt her face screw into a nasty, lip-curling mask. I'm the one who told them to drop that bomb. I'm the one who made those people die. Me. But you wouldn't know what that kind of responsibility is like because you're just a goddamn grunt. This was the part of the dance where he'd say something like, Just a grunt? I'm not as smart as you, so I don't matter. And then she would tell him he was exactly right, because that would hurt him, and she wanted to hurt him. She didn't have anyone else to lash out against. His eyes narrowed to black slits. His skin gleamed brighter, because the arguments always made him sweat. He took in a nostril-flaring breath. There it was, the anger she wanted to see. She waited for his usual response. He didn't deliver it. The big, held breath slowly slid out of his lungs, not as a yell, but a sigh of defeat. And he didn't even look angry anymore. He didn't look hurt either. He looked spent. Clarence stared at the floor. Margaret felt a pang of alarm. Something was wrong, more wrong than normal. Clarence Otto always looked people in the eye, as if he was a lighthouse perpetually flashing confidence forever broadcasting a constant message of alpha male. Margaret felt hot. Her left hand pulled at the leg of her sweatpants. Tug and release. Tug and release. Tug and release. Margot, he said, his voice barely a whisper. I can't do this anymore. Her hand speeded up. Tug and release. Tug and release. Tug and release. He was going to say the words she constantly hoped he would say, the same words she never wanted to hear. He cleared his throat, an oddly soft noise from a man of his size. 
Us, he said, the single syllable loud, definitive. I can't do us anymore. She took a step back, a step so weak she almost fell, and still he stared down. This man, this tall, strong man who had served his country in one form or another for twenty years, this black man who had put up with anything he'd had to in order to climb the ranks of the white-run CIA, this lover who had once put her on the back of a motorcycle and raced her out of Detroit while the world went crazy around them, now this man could not look at her. That tiny inaction said more than any words ever could. Clarence had already made up his mind. He had made the decision days ago, probably, and had been waiting for the right moment to tell her. Knowing him, he'd been waiting for a chance to be kind, to at least try to be kind, but she'd forced it out of him. She'd been a self-involved bitch and backed him into a corner. Honey, she said. There was more to the sentence, but she lost it. The single word hung in the air, lonely and impotent. She thought of their early years together, their happiest years, and how they'd squandered much of that with days and even weeks apart due to her marathon sessions in the lab or his other assignments. She thought of how they'd console each other by saying they had all the time in the world to catch up. Because they were married. Because they were together. Now it was all gone. Clarence sniffed. He blinked back tears. I'm getting older, Margot. I want a wife who's here. I want a family. I can't, she said instantly, feeling better for the briefest moment, because this was another familiar argument. I can't bring a child into this world. A world of death and violence. A world of constant hatred. And she was too old. Too old for a baby. Those excuses and a hundred more. Clarence sniffed again. He wiped the back of his hand against his eyes. I know you can't. I accept that. Once I was willing to give up children if I could have you. He looked up, spread his hands to indicate the room where she spent almost all her time. But you're not you anymore, Margot. She shook her head. Honey, you don't... Stop, he said sharply. The word a slap that landed in her soul instead of on her face. Then softer. You know me. You know I wouldn't start this unless it was already finished. I love you. I always will. You didn't kill millions. You saved billions. I tried to help you realize that. But you know what? It's just not something you want to hear. Margaret spent much of her time hating him wanting him to go. But now that he'd brought the idea out of the shadows and into a squirming reality, she suddenly, desperately wanted him to stay. She couldn't have let this slip away. I won't give you babies so you're leaving me. That's all I am to you, just a breeding factory? She'd used that argument before, and it had always worked. This time, however, his eyes hardened. You're not a breeding factory. You're not a wife, either. We don't even make love. This was about his goddamn dick? Her hands clenched into fists. We just had sex a couple of days ago. Two weeks ago. Only the second time in the last four months. It seemed like more, 
but she knew better than to argue with him. He probably kept a calendar somewhere, tracked the actual days. That was often the difference between the two of them. Margaret reacted. Clarence planned. He weakly waved a hand at the laptop. You don't want me because that is your lover. You want the hurt and the misery. You want to read the awful things people say about you. She felt a stinging in the back of her eyes and a hard piece of iron in her chest where it met her neck. They despise me. I deserve it. The sadness faded from his eyes, replaced by conviction. That look stabbed deeper than his angry stare ever could. It was done. You don't deserve to be hated, but I'm done being your punching bag. If you can't love yourself, I won't spend any more time trying to convince you why you should. You've given up on life. I haven't. I need someone who'll fight by my side, not roll over and wait for death. I need a soldier. That's what you were once, but not anymore. island in frigid lake superior a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it ancestor by number one new york times best-selling author scott sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong available wherever you get your podcasts she felt her hands gripping her shoulders felt her body start to shake. Her rage had vanished. The puppeteer that made her say horrible things had fled the field of battle. But Clarence, I love you. He shook his head. Margaret wanted to go to him, hold him, have him hold her. But a barrier had sprung up between them, a distance that might as well have been miles. His cell phone buzzed. He pulled it out in an automatic motion, so fluid and fast it was more muscle memory than conscious thought. Don't answer that, please, not now. He looked at the screen, then at her. It's Longworth. I don't care if it's Jesus, not now, Clarence, please. He stared at her for another moment. The phone buzzed again. He answered. Yes, sir. Clarence listened. His eyes widened. Yes, sir, now it's fine. He put the phone away. She felt numb. Not cold, not hot, not even angry or sad. Just numb. You just told me you're abandoning me and now you're going to go to work? I'm not going anywhere. Murray will be here in 15 minutes. The director of the Department of Special Threats was coming to their house at 3.30 on a Wednesday afternoon. It was important, but she didn't care. You know I don't want anyone here. Why didn't he have you drive in? Clarence took a step closer. Because he's coming to see you. She felt a cold pinch of fear. There could be only one reason Murray wanted to see her. It was starting again. Chapter 4 Girls, Girls, Girls such a tough choice. Sit in the sun and watch girls in bikinis, or spend the afternoon rolling up forks and knives and napkins. Steve Stanton had opted for the former. He'd slipped away from the restaurant earlier that morning while his mother, father, uncle, and cousins were prepping the day's vegetables, 
pot stickers, and egg rolls. Steve held advanced degrees in robotics, artificial intelligence, and computational science. Yet his family wanted him to snap the stems off green beans and prepare a hundred sets of flatware for the customers who couldn't figure out how to use chopsticks. He wasn't doing it, especially on a day like today. Instead, Steve had brought a lawn chair out to the narrow, run-down park that ran along the St. Joseph's River. He'd also brought his laptop. That, connected through his cell, gave him the Internet. His father didn't know cell phones could do that. If the man came looking for Steve, he'd start in the coffee shops that offered free Wi-Fi. Steve gazed up at blue skies, soaking up delicious warmth. For once, the November clouds had failed to appear. Gulls called constantly, both close and distant. He looked at the boats either heading out onto the endless horizon of Lake Michigan or returning to port. A century-old black iron bridge hovered over the river, ready to turn 90 degrees and connect the railroad tracks on either side should a train come along. His father would never look for him here, not in the park while an unseasonal sun blazed down. Steve normally avoided the sun. He'd inherited his mother's light complexion. As she had done back in China, she made a point of staying as pale as possible. Dark skin was for laborers, for field workers. Steve didn't care about his color. He stayed covered up because he had no intention of dying from skin cancer. Shorts and a t-shirt might have been more comfortable than his sweatshirt and jeans, but the long sleeves and hood blocked the sun's rays. But in the lawn chair, laptop on his knees, Steve slid his sleeves a little higher so he could type unencumbered. Not that he was typing all that much. Three girls were also taking advantage of what might be the year's last sunny day to stretch themselves out on a blanket laid upon the grass. They all looked to be in their mid-twenties, about Steve's age. His eyes kept flicking away from his screen's engineering reports and oceanographic research to the girls, to their long hair, to their tanned skin gleaming with oil. He ached to talk to them, but those kinds of girls didn't want a guy like him. Girls like that wanted the captain of the football team, not the captain of the chess club. Girls like that didn't care that he'd earned two doctorates before he'd turned 21. Could have earned at least another three if he hadn't been forced to keep his discoveries secret. And anyway, those kind of girls didn't go for first-generation Chinese-American nerds. As smart as he was, talking to women made him feel stupid. It made him feel small. The girls back at Berkeley had liked him. Well, not girls who looked like that, but at least they were girls. Here in Benton Harbor, Michigan, women wouldn't give him the time of day, let alone their phone numbers. For all Steve's brilliance, he was wasting away in this shithole of a town in a shithole of a state, waiting for a moment to serve his people and his country, a moment that was never going to come. He couldn't use his education, his rather significant set of skills, couldn't do anything that might draw attention. Not until the Ministry of State Security decided there was nothing in Lake Michigan worth finding. His eyes followed the curve of the middle girl's ass, took in the smooth skin, the way the sun kicked off a soft reflection from the curve's apex. She looked up, caught him staring. He turned away instantly, tapped random keys on his keyboard, focusing on the screen like it was the only thing in the world. He heard the girl laugh. Just her at first. Than the other two. He felt smaller than ever. A trickle of sweat rolled down his temple, but he knew the heat wouldn't last. Weather.com said the first big fall storm was on the way in. Early effects were due in about a half an hour. 
The encroaching front would soon chase away the girls with the long legs and tight butts, while Steve would be nice and warm in his heavier clothes. By tonight, everything would be freezing and wet. Why did people live in Michigan anyway? Winters full of cold and snow. Trees shed leaves that turned into a brown paste on the roads. When the summer finally came, it brought with it sweltering, cloying humidity that seemed to suck the sweat right out of your body. He wanted out of this washed-up excuse of a small city, wanted to leave this frigid state for good, to go somewhere the sun never hid behind clouds or vanished for weeks on end. He wanted to go back to Cali, to Berkeley. He had friends there, people who understood him. And if he couldn't go back to California, he wanted to go to his real home. He wanted to see China for the first time, experience the nation of his people, see where his parents and ancestors had come from. Even his last name, Stanton, that wasn't his. The MSS had ordered his parents to change their names when they arrived in America, more for his sake than theirs, as it helped establish their son as just another American boy. What Steve wanted never seemed to matter, though. The MSS wouldn't let him go to China, not that he ever talked to anyone who was actually from the MSS, just their messengers, their errand boys. So warm. Steve's eyelids drooped. Maybe the girls stopped laughing at him. Maybe he just dozed off. A shadow fell across his face. Steve looked up to see a wrinkled old man looking down at him. Well, if it wasn't the MSS's main messenger. Bopan, Steve said. Haven't seen you in a while. Bopan nodded once. Steve sighed. <sighs> You're blocking my son. Bopin looked down, realized he was casting a shadow. He quickly stepped to the left. Uh, sorry, sorry, the man said. Bopin wore second-hand jeans, second-hand sneakers, and a Detroit Lions sweatshirt that was probably third-hand, if not fourth, with wispy hair around the temples of a bald head and eyes that were deeply slanted even by Chinese standards. Bopan didn't look like a threat to anything but the grass on some rich white dude's lawn. Steve sat up, turned, put his feet on the sparse, cool grass and packed dirt. There's nothing new to report, but you know that. Here to check up on me? Bopan shook his head. He looked out at the river, squinted at the sun, then took in Steve's chair. The old man frowned. You look comfortable. Are you enjoying yourself? Steve smiled. I am, actually. It's a beautiful day for a pimp like me. Bopin's mouth pursed in confusion. For someone who had spent decades living in America, he understood little of the culture and none of the lingo. Do your mother and father know it is a beautiful day? I saw them working away in the restaurant. Bopin hadn't come around in, what, three months? Three months without a peep, and the first thing he had to communicate was a guilt trip? Steve eased back in his chair. He took his time, milking the motion just to annoy Bopin. My mother and father don't need me today. You are lazy. You have grown up like them like them, like an American. 
Steve glanced over at the girls. He couldn't help it. As if being a semi-heliophobic nerd sitting with a laptop wasn't enough of a turnoff, now he was hanging out with a hunched-over, fifty-something old man. The girls were pulling on sweatshirts of their own, stepping into form-fitting jeans. The temperature was dropping. I'm not lazy. I'm efficient. My work is done, remember? The old man shook his head. No longer. We have such a location. Steve sat up. He forgot about the girls. Forgot about the sun. A location. The older man smiled, showing the space where his front right incisor once resided. A location. Five years of effort, millions of dollars spent. Steve didn't know exactly how much, but it was a lot. The whole reason his family and the People's Party had hidden him away in this inflamed hemorrhoid of a town. And now it was finally his moment to shine. He didn't know what to think, how to feel. Afraid? Excited? After all this time, was it finally his turn? A location. How do we get it? Bopin shrugged. The American love of money knows no bounds. Uh, no, I mean, how did we, or they, or whatever, get the location, satellite? Did someone properly model the entry angle? Uh, did someone find... His voice trailed off. Did he dare to hope? Gutierrez's green men. The story of the century. Steve's task. Build a machine that could dive undetected to the bottom of Lake Michigan. Could there be actual pieces of an alien spacecraft? Wreckage! Did someone find wreckage? Bopin shook his head. You don't need that information. Steve nodded automatically, acquiescing to Bopin as if the man was something more than a simple go-between. Wreckage. It had to be. Steve had finished work on the platypus three months earlier. His baby was more a piece of art than a cutting-edge unmanned underwater vehicle. It sat in a crate like a caged animal, unable to move, unable to fulfill its purpose. Other than midnight test runs, there had been no point in putting the UUV to work. Unless Steve knew where to look, he couldn't have the machine go out and explore 22,400 square miles of Lake Michigan. But now, they had a location. The old man cleared his throat, dug his left pointer finger into the folds of flesh below his left eye, rubbed there. When I last spoke with you, you said you had a researched a local vessel that could take your machine far out on the water. Steve nodded. JBS Salvage. A small operation, as I asked. Not a big fleet of ships. Just two men, only one boat. Good. And you check on them frequently? Every week. A lie. A lie fueled by a stab of fear that maybe JPS had finally landed a job, that they wouldn't be available. It had been three weeks since he'd even bothered to see if their boat was still in port. Bopin cleared his throat again. This time he spit phlegm onto the dirt. <coughs> Can you talk to them right now? Of course, Steve said, that feeling of foolishness growing. Why hadn't he checked every week? Bopin was right. Steve had been lazy. If they had to find another company to carry the platypus to the target area, 
How long would that take? Days? Weeks? Bopan's eyes narrowed. You seem unsure. It's fine. I got this. And your strange machine. It is ready. There's nothing you need to tell me. Steve smiled. That was something he didn't have to lie about. My gear is ready to rock, player. Bopan nodded. Good, good. They will be happy to hear that. If you hire the boat company today, how soon do you think we can leave? Steve felt a small burning in his chest. We? Bopan looked away, embarrassed. <sighs> they want me to go with you. Of course, there had to be something to diminish the moment. Steve would be stuck on a boat with this old man for days, maybe even weeks. Well, that was a small price to pay to finally put the platypus to work. And at the very least, it was better than rolling up forks and knives and napkins. I'll go see JBS right now. Maybe we can leave in a day or two. Bopan slid both of his hands into his sweatshirt's front pocket. He pulled out a thick envelope and a cell phone. He handed the envelope over. Tonight. Make them leave tonight. Steve took the envelope. It felt solid, heavy, a brick of money. Bopan then handed Steve the cell. Call me when you know. Use this phone only. I am already prepared for the trip. The old man turned and walked across the park grass, headed for his rust-spotted ten-year-old Chevy pickup. Steve turned back to face the water. The girls were gone. The wind was already growing from a stiff breeze into shirt-pulling gusts. November was supposed to be the worst time to be out on Lake Michigan. Five years preparing for this day. No, more like nine considering that they'd recognized his intelligence early and sent him to Berkeley, readying him for a project that would require a brilliant, deeply embedded engineer. Embedded? That wasn't even the right word. Steve had been born right here, in Benton Harbor, he was as American as those girls, and yet he longed to serve a country he had never seen. A lifetime of waiting for a chance to serve his people, his heritage, and now, perhaps, his moment had finally come. He just hoped no one would get hurt. You have been listening to Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. 
Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.